Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. But Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16 today. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish philosopher and theologian, once used the example of some wild geese to illustrate a very powerful point. As with their typical seasonal migration patterns, the geese came and went just as their ancestors had done for centuries. Now, one day, some of the geese on their annual journey landed in a farmer's barnyard. He adopted them, saw to it that they had everything they needed, plenty of grain to eat. Life was easy and uh, comfortable for them. The uh, geese uh, never had to worry about uh, where their next meal was coming from. Uh, They decided they'd found a comfortable place to live out the rest of their days. And and as time went along, the the easy life kind of took its toll on the geese. The geese became fat and lazy. And their ambition to soar again in the high places faded. Occasionally they would hear the familiar honks of their friends high above, but the the fat, lazy barnyard geese could only just casually look up. Now occasionally one of them would have a a familiar old stirring deep inside to to join his friends and to, to soar once more where the air was pure and sweet and invigorating. One day, those stirrings were just too strong to resist, and one of the geese started its courageous run across the pasture, extended its wings, and became airborne for a few feet, and then it plopped awkwardly back to the earth. Before long, the call to the high places all but vanished in the barnyard geese. Their friends would fly over, honking their call to a higher, nobler life. But the earthbound geese paid very little attention as they continually pecked away at the farmer's corn. And soon, the desire to return to the sky and to those long flights to freedom had disappeared completely. You see, the geese were made for high places. But the easy life had just kind of ruined them. So today, as we look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, we find that the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Philippi and and us that we're also made for spiritual high places. The call to the church at Philippi and to us, it's a divine call to a, a higher life. Paul's urging us toward spiritual maturity by following his example of perseverance in the faith, by awaiting the return of Christ, by standing firm in the Lord. In fact, the big idea behind our message today is simply this, that mature believers move forward in faith while keeping their eyes on Christ. So let's look at the text together. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. Read along with me here. Paul says, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, 
But I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behead, ahead, behind, and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Now, I think there are two basic statements that really describe every growing, born-again Christian. In fact, the first one really describes everybody. That's the fact that we have failed in the past. And that's a given. As sinners, we've all fallen short of God's glory. But as Christians, recovering sinners, we, uh, we can sometimes fall short of God's goal for our lives. Now here's a second statement. We're dissatisfied with the present, meaning our present spiritual state. Most growing Christians would agree with that statement because we want to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're just not quite there yet. Well, here in Philippians chapter 3, as Paul gives us a glimpse into his own spiritual life, he reveals that he the Apostle Paul, the world's greatest evangelist, still had parts of his life that needed improvement. Well, you know, that ought to encourage us. It ought to challenge us to, like Paul, run for the prize. The prize in our quest for spiritual maturity. Now, I want you to notice four things and these verses, these five verses we're gonna look at this morning. Here's the first one. I want you to notice Paul's inspection. Now last week, as we looked at verses one through 11 in chapter three, we discussed all of the reasons Paul could have boasted in himself, could have had, as he said, confidence in the flesh. I mean, he, he could have boasted about his Hebrew heritage. He could have boasted about his religious pedigree or his zeal for the law. But you know what? That was the old Paul, the new Paul, the one that met Jesus on that Damascus road. He was a Christ follower, but not your average Christian. Paul was handpicked to be the apostle to the Gentiles by Jesus. God was using him to record inspired words of Scripture. He was a tremendous soul winner and preacher of the Word. I mean, anyone on the outside peering into Paul's life would have thought, man, he's got it going on. He's got all of his ducks in a row. He has spiritually arrived. But you see, as Paul does a closer inspection of his own spiritual life, Paul says, not so fast, my friends. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, he says. That's the beginning of verse 12. Beginning of verse 13, he restates that. I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. Paul knew the truth. He had not arrived, but he was still working towards that ultimate goal, which is perfect Christ-likeness. Now, 
Here's the sweet irony of what Paul is actually saying here. You know, his declaration that he had not yet reached spiritual maturity is in and of itself an earmark of spiritual maturity. I mean, it's, it's called humility. And Paul gave us the perfect example of that in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where he showed us Christ's obedience in leaving heaven and going to the cross. But in fact, if you are actually arrogant enough to think that, spiritually speaking, you have arrived, yeah, you better watch out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Told the Galatian churches in Galatians 6, 3, if anyone considers himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So if you get to that place where you feel like you have spiritually arrived, yeah, you, uh, you're actually going to cease to grow in the Lord. You're going to regress. If you've lost a teachable spirit, that's when you begin to become stagnant. Now, on the flip side of that, if you're willing to admit that there are areas in your Christian life where you still need to grow, well, that is a sign of a maturing Christian. In his humility, Paul realized he wasn't perfect. But he didn't use that as an excuse to give up. And you should not either. Because you're still a work in progress, believer. And, you know, just because you haven't reached that level of spiritual maturity that Paul's talking about, don't get discouraged and give up on God. Don't quit on him. Because let's be honest, y'all, there are going to be times in your Christian life when you are going to stumble and fail. But that should not disqualify you from the Christian life, from this race that we're running. I mean, if you've fallen, get back up, start again, remembering that this race that we're running, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And it's one that you can only be enabled to run in the power of God's Holy Spirit. All right, so we see Paul's inspection. He's done an honest self-assessment, and he realizes he's still got room to grow. But because of the results of Paul's inspection, here's the second thing that we notice from him. We notice Paul's exertion. I like the descriptive language that Paul uses here to describe the Christian race. Now, we can break these three verses down into five key statements uh, from Paul. Uh, really five points of instruction to us. Here's the first one. Make every effort. He says in verse 12, I make every effort to take hold of it. Make every effort, or, or press on, as it might say in some of your English translations, might read, or uh, the way it reads in your English translation, it actually comes from a, from a Greek word, uh, deoko, that means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. Uh, the, the word picture is, there is, it's that of a chase, like a hunter who's pursuing prey. Now, for you grammar nerds, it's actually in the present tense active voice. What does that mean? It means a, it's a continual ongoing command. I continue daily to swiftly pursue my goal. Paul says he runs to take hold 
of the prize. Now, the word there means to make something your own. You know, I'm working not just in pursuit of it, but actually in the apprehension of it. But, okay, if you're a grammar Nazi, well, then you need to understand that it's actually in the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is the mood of possibility or potential, something that could happen. Paul's basically saying, hey, it's not mine yet, but I'm running to someday win that prize. Now, why is he doing that? Oh, that's easy. Because of what Jesus did for Paul. I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul realized that there was a purpose for his salvation, that God had a plan for his life. And Paul wasn't going to be satisfied until he had apprehended that for which he had been apprehended by Jesus. Now, that begs the question of all of us believers. What are you doing about what God saved you for? I mean, you've made a profession of faith, right? So you know that God has saved you from something. That's the penalty of sin. But are you ignoring what God has saved you for? You know, maybe you got saved, but you got stuck in the starting blocks, and you haven't fully embraced God's purposes for you. Let me tell you, God's got plans for you. In his book, The Cure for the Common Life, Max Lucado wrote this. He suggested there are three things that we should do in our lives to really begin to live life in what he calls your sweet spot. First one, find out what you are really good at. Second one, Use that to make a big deal out of God. Third one, do it every day. If you do those three things, you find you're living life in your sweet spot. So do some self-examination. Ask yourself, what are my talents? What are my spiritual gifts? What passions has God implanted in me? What, what has he given me a desire to do or a burden for? And then use those things to make a big deal out of God and just watch and see what God is going to do in and through you. But by all means, pursue the life of purpose in Jesus Christ. Find your satisfaction in him. Find your joy in him. Now, I want you to note what Paul says at the beginning of verse 13. He's telling us, do your one thing. But one thing I do, Paul writes. One thing. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Todd Graves. He's the founder of Raising Cane's. Fascinating story. At age 24, he had a dream to open up a restaurant that does one thing and does it better than anybody else. And that was simply to serve the most craveable chicken finger meals. And let me tell you something, y'all, they are. They are, they have the most amazing chicken tinder. In fact, just thinking about it, I'm starting to salivate. I, I may have to go to lunch there after church. They're that good. But wait, wait a minute though, a restaurant that only serves chicken fingers? You gotta be kidding me. 
his business plan actually received the lowest grade in the college class because the professor said, it'll never work. And when Todd went to find investors, nobody could really catch his vision. None of the banks would loan him any money, but he wasn't going to give up. So Todd Graves went to Los Angeles and he began to work as a boiler maker in an oil refinery, grinding through 90 hour weeks to raise the money to fuel his restaurant dream. Oh, but then learning that he could actually make more money commercial fishing, Todd went to Alaska, landed a job on a fishing boat catching salmon in Bristol Bay, working 20 hour days in harsh conditions. But once he had the capital, he returned home to Baton Rouge, began renovating an old building next to the LSU campus that would become the first Raising Cane's location. And the rest is history. Todd and his crew have grown Raising Cane's from a single restaurant to one of the fastest growing restaurant brands in America. In fact, today there are 721 raising Cane's locations in 38 states and territories. And the company's slogan, one love. One love. Because Todd Graves had a vision to do one thing and to do it better than anybody else. Now, similarly here in Philippians chapter three, Paul is saying one thing. One thing I do. I mean, just like an Olympic athlete who trains day after day, year after year in fulfillment of a dream, Paul was intent on reaching one thing, reaching his goal. Now, I think one of the big problems with Christians today is that not very many of us can say one thing I do. I mean, most of us were pulled and tugged into a thousand different directions, pursuing so many different things, making any number of things a greater priority than our pursuit of life in Christ. Ask yourself, believer, what's your one thing? Because if your one thing is not Jesus, you need to reexamine your priorities. You see, when Jesus is number one, when he's up at the top of the list, all those other things that you love, the people, the things that you're passionate about, they'll all take care of themselves. Church, there's only one thing that's going to matter when this life is over and we all stand at the judgment seat of Christ and that's how well we ran our race for our Savior Jesus. He ought to be our one love, the one priority that supersedes all others in our pursuit of the goal. And that's the way it was for Paul. Nothing was as important to him as his pursuit of Christ. Now, there are a couple of things that he had to do in pursuit of his one thing. Look at the end of verse 13. He's telling us to forget the past forgetting what is behind, he says in verse 13. Now, I think Paul could have had a couple of things in mind here. Paul could have either meant his, his old uh, pre-Christian life, and he discussed that extensively back in verses 4 through 6 uh, as he was re reflecting on his life as a Pharisee. Or he might simply have been thinking of his previous progress as a Christian. Or maybe he's thinking of both. 
Maybe you're familiar with the uh, figure of speech resting on your laurels. Resting on your laurels, it's a phrase that dates back to ancient Greek and Roman traditions where victorious Olympians or generals wore crowns of laurel wreaths as symbols of victory and success and, and status. And having won a campaign, a Roman general could spend the rest of his career savoring his past successes, basking in the memories of former glories. Well, you know, past achievements and successes are, are great. I mean, there's something to celebrate and to learn from, but if we let them, they can actually prevent progress. I mean, if we're too busy, you know, looking back over our shoulders at past glory, we will lose an eye toward what's ahead. And we can become complacent, even downright apathetic, forgetting what is behind. Paul's saying, I refuse to dwell on the past. Man, if you run your race with an eye on past victories, then you're going to have the tendency to coast and just rest on your past accomplishments. Now, on the flip side of that, if you run your race with an eye toward past failures, yeah, then you're going to be so paralyzed by the fear of failure that you'll never move forward. All right, then, so what should we have our eyes on? Oh, the writer of Hebrews makes that very clear. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. To do his one thing, Paul's forgetting what's behind. And then he says at the end of verse 13, to reach ahead. Reaching forward to what is ahead, he writes. Now, the Greek there, it means to exert yourself to the uttermost. It more, it more literally means the, the stretching out towards something. I mean, it's the, the metaphor of a runner leaning forward as he nears the finish line. So Paul is stretching forward with all that he has to be sure that he finishes the race. And so we got to ask ourselves, believers, can we honestly say to ourselves that we're straining, reaching forward with all that we have to reach the goal? I think for a lot of believers, the Christian life, it's kind of a hit or miss proposition. Hey, if we succeed for the Lord, then hallelujah. But, you know, if we happen to stumble and fall, oh, oh well, I'll try to do better tomorrow. Not Paul. He was not content to just sit around and, and wait for stuff to happen. No, Paul, he was busy making it happen. I mean, he was out there stretching toward the finish line, trying to be all that he could be for Jesus. He was trying to reach his fullest potential for the glory of God. And in the process, he was setting a wonderful example for us today. So to do his one thing, Paul had to forget what is behind. He had to reach for what is ahead in order to pursue the goal. Verse 14, he says, I pursue as my goal. Now there's that Greek word again, dioko. I'm rapidly, decisively chasing my objective, my goal. 
Some of your translations in English are going to say, I press toward the mark. Paul wanted to finish well. And finish well, he did. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Folks, there's a, there's a mark. There's a goal that we should all be striving for in our lives. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the goal. Let's avoid that trap of becoming distracted by all of the lesser things in life. I mean, too many of us, we, we come out of the, the starting blocks and we're primed, we're pumped to run the race, but after a time we, we get distracted and kind of fall by the wayside. Now, how do we keep from doing that? By running with eternity in view. By keeping our eyes on the prize. All right, now speaking of the prize, I want you to notice a third thing. We discussed Paul's inspection. We talked about Paul's exertion. Here's another thing. Paul's anticipation. I pursue the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. That's in verse 14. So Paul tells us he's running for the prize. Uh, the Greek word there for prize, it's actually where we get our English word brave. But it means an award for exceptional performance. See, in the ancient games, this is the award presented to the victor in a race. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.24. When he says, don't you know that all the runners in a stadium race, but only one receives the prize, run in such a way to win the prize. Paul wanted to run a worthy race. And so he's anticipating the prize that God has in store for him. Now, what is that prize that Paul's running for? Well, some would say the immediate prize was Christ-likeness, that Paul's prize is Christ-likeness. And in fact, in the previous verses, the ones we looked at last week, he did speak of his desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, whether that's the goal that Paul is specifically seeking or not, I think one thing we know for sure that the Christ-likeness, the spiritual maturity that he's talking about here that Paul gained, it was definitely a byproduct of the race itself and the way he was running it. Now, I think we do get some textual clues as to what else Paul might have been referring to. He says the prize is promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now, some of your translations are going to refer to it as the high calling or the upward call. But the word there in the Greek, it means an invitation to a special privilege or responsibility, one that's given by divine initiative. So what was that divinely issued privilege that he's referring to? What was Paul yearning for? We get a possible answer in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, where we see that Paul's prize is a crown. Listen to what he tells Timothy. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all 
who have loved his appearing. See, that crown of righteousness is one of five crowns that's awarded to believers. It's mentioned in the New Testament. It's an everlasting crown. It's obtained and possessed only in a righteous way. And it's only promised to all those who love the Lord and eagerly are awaiting his return. And so the crown is not for those who depend on their own sense of righteousness or their own works. Because let's be honest, that kind of thinking, that just breeds pride and, and arrogance, not a longing, not a fervent desire to be with the Lord. It's a reward with Christ in eternity one that can only be enjoyed as a citizen of heaven. A crown that we can then, after receiving it, can turn around and in the ultimate act of worship, lay it at the feet of Jesus. So we've seen Paul's inspection, his exertion, his anticipation, a heavenly prize, victory in Jesus. Let's turn our attention to one more thing. That's Paul's instruction. Beginning of verse 15, he says, therefore. Okay, so in light of everything he's just said to us in verses 12 through 14, he says, therefore. Let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Let all of us who are mature think this way in verse 15. It, it simply means that those who are truly grown up in Christ are going to be willing to live the sort of life that Paul is calling for in these verses, to make every effort to become more like Jesus. And the kind of life that he is describing here, okay, it's going to seem extreme. It's going to seem fanatical to some people, but this is the mature Christian attitude. Paul sees it as the natural response to what Christ Jesus did when he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary for all of us. Now, the $64,000 for you, Christian, the $64,000 question is, does this match your attitude toward the Christian life? Then when Paul says, if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. He's acknowledging that not everybody's going to agree with him in adopting such an attitude, but Paul is confident that if a person is really willing to know the truth of a matter, that God will reveal to him the same thing that he's already revealed to Paul, that we must run for the prize. But whatever truth you've attained, he says in verse 16, live up to it. Or to borrow the Nike slogan, just do it. If the Christian life is a race, then run it. In October of 1984, a 26.2 mile marathon was held in Richmond, Virginia. 831 runners entered the race. About three hours, the winner had crossed the finish line, and only a handful of people even knew that 10-year-old Dak Axel was still running. Well, if you can call what he was doing running. It wasn't really so much a run as it was a fast shuffle. You see, Dak was born with spina bifida, 
Doctors said he would never walk if he even lived at all. Of course, he defied the odds. He lived. He did learn to walk with heavy leg braces and, and crutches. But Dak developed a love for running. And so he set his sights on the toughest race of all, the 26-mile so as he swung those leg braces down the road of his marathon, more and more people heard that he was still running. Twice near the end, he had to stop to, to change gloves, to rewrap the gauze around his forearms. But each time, he got back up to race again. And finally, after 11 hours and 10 minutes, he came to the finish. <laughs> Though the race had officially ended an hour and a half earlier. Well, officials, helpers, those who had already finished the race had packed their bags to leave. But as Dak was nearing the finish line, word spread like wildfire. Officials found the finish line, put it back up. And more than 1,000 people cheered wildly as Dak pressed on. Many of them wept as he finally finished his marathon. And though he was awarded no medals, Dak became the biggest winner of the day simply because he pressed on toward the goal. Didn't matter how slow his time was. It only mattered that he kept his eyes on the finish. Pressed on toward the goal. And he completed the race. Likewise, mature believers move forward in faith while keeping their eyes on Jesus Christ. Church, if we're going to succeed in this race that we call the Christian life and honor God by the lives that we live, we've got to keep running. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. So I've got to ask you, believers, what is it that you have your eyes on today? In just a few minutes, uh, Annika and the team are going to come lead us, and we're going to sing these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Will you be able to sing that honestly? Have you turned your eyes to Jesus alone? You see, getting our focus solely on Jesus, that's going to give you the direction you need. And His Holy Spirit's going to give you the empowerment you need to successfully run your race. But when you're running your race with your eyes on Jesus, that is going to be the source of unspeakable joy. Why? Why bother? Why run for the prize? Yeah, that's pretty simple. That's because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Yes, Jesus saved us from something, penalty of sin, but he also saved us for something, his glory. He saved us to follow 
after him, to strive to be like him in every detail of life. Jesus saved us to do a job for him and for his kingdom. And when we obediently do what the Lord instructs, when we live our lives in pursuit of the prize, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 8, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Church, don't you long for that day when you stand before the Savior and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come share your master's joy. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.